Pip Cheerio. I'm Lauren Garoni. And I'm Dame Chelsea Fairless. <laughs> and today we have a very special episode about the country that once colonized this great land. England. I, for one, am chuffed. But you know what, Lauren? You know what's tragic? They don't actually say Pip Pip Cheerio. That's just an American invention of what we think the Brits are like? Yeah, they like actually don't say that. It's the most tragic thing in the world. Well, we're doing this episode because we realized as we were putting the topics together, it was all Brit-centric. So might as well just go full tilt Brit. Yeah, I contemplated doing the entire episode in an Eliza Doolittle accent. And then I realized like Britain's been through so much with like Brexit and Prince Harry's memoir and stuff that like I don't need to add to their pain. Yeah. And just wait till we talk about London Fashion Week and have to start pronouncing some of these designers (laughs) names. It's not going to go well, guys. But before we get into this very British episode, we wanted to mention that we are coming to Miami on March 5th to interview Heidi Bivens, who is the costume designer for Euphoria, multiple Harmony Kareen films. And this event is part of the Miami Film Festival, so we will put the link to buy tickets in the show notes. Please come, because we want the crowd to be a, like, Carrie Bradshaw the first time she's at the Learning Annex vibe, (laughs) not the second time. Can I just mention that in the calendar when you sent our travel information, you just named this trip Party in the City Where the Heat is On. (laughs) And party we shall. Let's get into it. It is crazy that everything relevant to what we want to talk about does have a British slant, including the fact that Sam Smith will be appearing in And Just Like That. Truly shocking. Do we think they are playing themselves or someone else? I think either is possible because we already know that Tony Danza is playing himself within the world of his show. And there were celebrities that did play themselves on Sex and the City, like Lucy Liu, like Heather Graham. So that's definitely possible. Charlotte could take rock to a Sam Smith concert. Right, but we do know that Michael Patrick King does have a history of making British singer-songwriters be someone else because Jerry Hollowell didn't get to be Jerry Hollowell, just unnamed British person Samantha knew outside Soho House. The question is, are they Che Diaz's new love interest? Uh, We have not seen Che. Whatever happened to baby Che? (laughs) Okay. Another thing, I think the most deranged cross-marketing I have ever seen was the joint post between Sam Smith and and just like that's official account. And the caption was like, getting up to something unholy on the set of and just like that. It's like, what? <laughs> you are also using this to plug your single? Like, this is psychotic. Also, can you believe that song won a Grammy? I mean, no, but... <laughs> I'm happy for Kim Petras because she's obviously fab, but like, yikes. Did we discuss that the conservatives have left Balenciaga and now are obsessed with calling Sam Smith a Satanist? Over the Grammy performance where they were dressed as the devil, that song actually does name drop Balenciaga. So there is some crossover. Sam Smith promoting their single leads me to believe that they may just be appearing in a Jerry Hollowell fashion. It seems like a lot to hype that though, to hype like a under five role for Sam Smith. That's why they're promoting the single. I do think that this whole uproar around their Grammy performance is truly psychotic. I'm completely shocked that people are acting as if the last 30 years of like Madonna using religious iconography and metal bands and shit leaning into sort of satanic references, like none of that happened. Like Sam Smith is like the first person to explore this terrain. It's just wild to me. Conservatives' memories are very short. 
Yeah. But, you know, designers are, are diving back into the 80s for references, and so are Republicans. They're like, satanic panic. It's back, baby. Conservatives have to be the dumbest people in the world because they're not even reading between the lines. Like, they dressed as Satan. It's not an accident. The fact that we are going this deep into Sam Smith's performance at the Grammys tells you what little there is to say about their I'm going to say cameo on and just like that. Yeah. Look, I'm not a Sam Smith hater. I'm not the biggest fan. But oh my God, did you also see that video where they were getting heckled by some random psychopath like in a public park in New York? No, don't like this. For being a Satanist pedophile, not for being non-binary. <sighs> so fucked up. What if Che Diaz is opening up for Sam Smith? That's horrible, but like, I can see that. What if Sam Smith is getting into the comedy concert world? I don't know. We're just going to have to wait and see. But I do think that this is extremely bizarre. It's unholy. <laughs> it's truly unholy. Although that song, it is so catchy. Yeah. I wake up to it in my head. It's either that or the Megan Trainer song. Well... I mean, what a perfect transition because what I've been waking up to is Angela Bassett did the thing. <laughs> Viola Davis is my woman king. Wow. So the BAFTAs, which who knew the BAFTAs even happened? It just seems like it was an Ariana DeBose concert with some British people getting awards in between. Right. As two people who desperately live in fear of audience participation... This was terrifying to watch. Of course, the audience outside watching the BAFTAs found it cringe, but the audience at the BAFTAs are actors. And the vast majority of actors are theater kids who made it big. So they love this shit. But yeah, you could see some people like Ana de Armas and certainly Kate Blanchett look like they were actively imagining stabbing their publicist <laughs> in the neck for making them be there. My favorite face was Dolly DeLeon from Triangle of Sadness. I can't explain this expression on her face, but it was utterly incredible. It seems like Emma Thompson and Jamie Lee Curtis were the only people that were kind of like genuinely into it. Someone caught on their phone Colin Farrell, who they didn't cut to, but it was just like panning through the audience and he was like whooping it up. So Colin Farrell loved it as well. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you know what we're referring to. If not, let's just drop in the most infamous part of the rap here. Angela Bassett did the thing. Viola Davis, my woman king. Blanchett Kate, you're a genius. And Jamie Lee, you are all of us. This is why people that aren't rappers should never rap under any circumstance because it seemed like she was struggling to keep up with the band. Whereas like Nicki Minaj could have fit entire sentences like in between the verses of this song. Yeah, where I think it went wrong is twofold. Ariana DeBose did a similar improvised song and dance when she hosted the Tony Awards where she got in Andrew Garfield's face and sat in his lap while narrating what she was doing to him where she's like, I'm next to Andrew Garfield. I'm sitting in his lap. And people in the Tony's audience ate that shit up. I think this also highlights the difference between New York theater people and British theater people. Because okay, that's so rude. Well, 
Apologies to the West End. The British actors did not seem to enjoy this. You are so crazy for that because no one has higher standards for singing than theater people. I'm not getting on her for her singing ability. I'm talking about just the idea of doing an improvised rap with everyone's name. The second problem is and maybe the bigger issue, the song did not make a ton of sense. The lyrics, which I believe she wrote, I would hope so, were as big of a problem as the delivery. When she was referring to Sandy Powell and she was like, costume queen, can you fix the zip? I was like, I died inside. And the fact that she also ended it by saying, house of BAFTA, the vibe is strong. We've all been there. I used to be a copywriter. Sometimes you have a great idea, but you realize halfway through the execution, I can't pull this idea off to conclusion, and you just have to abandon it. Well, she couldn't exactly do that midway through the performance. I meant when she was coming up with it and being like, Jamie Lee... You're all of us? I I don't know. Was that an everything, everywhere, all at once reference? I guess. The craziest thing is the performance started off so strong because she started by singing Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves. Right. Into We Are Family. And then to segue into that was very rough. We should mention that she has deleted her Twitter. This is where it gets confusing because she deleted her Twitter, but she did respond to an Evan Ross Katz meme roundup post being like, I love this. Well, maybe that was like before she like really got deep on Twitter. Although I maintain that no one was saying like, fuck this bitch. The performance was camp and it was received as camp. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. It's an iconic pop culture moment. I'm just saying that this felt like a bit more suited for the People's Choice Awards than the BAFTAs. I don't know if this is suited for anything. Just no one should rap but rappers. Like remember when Millie Bobby Brown rapped the Cardi B part of that Maroon 5 song? Oh, God, where? I know that's the worst sentence I've ever uttered, but it did happen. You might not know it from the way we've been talking about this, but awards were handed out. (laughs) Okay, tell me, because the only thing I received from the BAFTAs was this performance and the red carpet fashion. What is not getting enough notice is the fact that Richard E. Grant hosted, and I think Richard E. Grant should be hosting all award shows. Wait, so you actually watched it? I watched a portion of it. Okay, okay. And he slayed. I mean, he showed up at Vivian Westwood's funeral looking fabulous. He's just had a great week, I want to say. Um, All Quiet on the Western Front sweeped all the big awards, which kind of makes sense for the BAFTAs. I don't think that that's going to continue for something like the Oscars. I feel like I'm doing the weather report. I feel like I'm a (laughs) meteorologist, but for the film industry. Aren't you? Uh, We got Tar Tailwinds coming in from the east. (laughs) (laughs) Kate Blanchett won Best Actress, which again, fingers crossed that she's going to win the Oscar and give it to Michelle Yeoh. No, we don't want, we want to avoid that situation. I mean, again, I think that she is going to have a Lydia Tarr-esque breakdown between the Critics' Choice Awards where she basically was like, fuck them awards to like her face breaking during Ariana DeBose's rap performance. It's like, I feel like she might go on stage and tackle someone, (laughs) tackle Jimmy Kimmel at the Oscars. I just want her to throw her shoulders back in that crazy way that she does in Tar when she's about to conduct. Or she just hides in the bathroom when Best Actress is read. Anyway, I think most interestingly is that Austin Butler won for Best Actor. So it's kind of an even split between Brendan Fraser winning at award shows and Austin Butler. So who knows who's going to win at the Oscars? 
Is it Elvis or the whale? The whale man. Oh my God, what if he showed up in the fat suit? Iconic. <sighs> I want Austin Butler as Elvis and Brendan Fraser in the whale suit with a custom Tom Ford tux. Very nice. I will say that the one thing that Brendan Fraser has been pointing out during his interviews is uh, this whole time we've been saying his name wrong. It's not Fraser, it's mm. Fraser, like Razor. Apologies to Brendan Fraser. Yeah, like Razor. Okay. I know people love making fun of Austin Butler for having the Elvis voice, but when he was accepting his BAFTA, his voice and mannerisms was giving Brad Pitt. Sorry, you guys can't see this, but he was doing that like Brad Pitt hand thing. Like, <laughs> almost like magic. <laughs> you look like you're throwing like a handful of gravel or something. That's what Brad Pitt does. <laughs> All right, shall we get into the red carpet? I was happy to see Kate Blanchett wearing a black Margiela gown that she had previously won to the Oscars in 2015 because the necklace that she originally wore it with <laughs> was so fucked up. It was like this turquoise, like Ralph Lauren, J. Crew type situation over this just like beautiful austere dress. It was actually a Tiffany and Co. necklace, but yes, it was giving later era Jenna Lyons J. Crew. Exactly. Like it's actually criminal to wear a statement necklace with Margella, unless it's by Margella. But she figured out the necklace this time. She wore these beautiful asymmetric pearls, but they reconstructed this gown. Did you notice this? Yeah, it, it definitely looks different. Unless someone pointed out it was the 2015 Oscar dress, I wouldn't have made that connection. The original was just like a normal sleeveless dress. This had like extreme shoulder pads, like Rick Owens type shit. If you've been nominated this many times and you've gone to this many award shows, I do feel like you're obligated to start recycling dresses, especially when you're at the level of a Cape Blanchett and you are gifted these gowns. Like, because where else are you going to wear it? Cleaning dishes? Like it's a Vogue shoot from 2005? This is also a reminder that sometimes it is worth altering our vintage pieces. I mean, not all of us can send the Margiela back to the atelier <laughs> to get it modified, but, you know, you can take something that you haven't worn in a minute to a tailor and get it updated, get it freshened up a bit. Speaking of which... Kate Middleton did the same thing. She wore a reworked Alexander McQueen dress, but this time she rewore a dress she wore to the 2019 BAFTAs. Did she wear gloves the first time though? Because the gloves looked incredible. No, that's what also made this different. And what I took away was that she was a woman who dared to wear black opera length gloves with a white dress. I'm thinking that she should wear black gloves with literally everything. Yeah. Like it makes her look a lot cooler. And I think... A bit of a makeover could really work in her favor right now, you know, because they need a bit of a rebrand. Megan and Harry are really pulling focus and it doesn't have to be that way. She's young, too. It's not like she's, you know, 80 or something. Well, she was also a relatable queen because she paired this with $28 earrings from Zara. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> Get local earrings. Local earrings? Like... The jewelry that this family possesses? Oh. You don't have to shop at Zara just to make a point. Sorry, I called her bitch. I'm sorry to the British people. Anyway. Now we're going to get one star reviews where people are like, she is a bitch. One star for apologizing for calling her a bitch. No, I, I, I guess I meant a stall at like Portobello Road or something. I forgot, of course. Yes, local jewelry for her would be the family jewels. 
<laughs> but it's fun to see her try to keep it real. She did look great, so good for her. Like I said with Kate Blanchett, this especially goes for someone like a Kate Middleton, where if you're going to that many balls, premieres, and such, you are obligated to rework some of these dresses. But can Anya Taylor-Joy really rewear that Scaparelli? Yeah, she wore the look that closed the Scaparelli couture show. She looked like a chic little elf. She wore one of the gowns that wasn't inspired by Dante's Inferno and had a hyper-realistic animal head on it. She did wear a strapless mini dress, essentially, that had a very dramatic, voluminous cape. And on the runway, it was styled over the shoulders. Yeah. But she wore it over her head, which was... A choice. And then at a certain point, because I saw a different photo while she was walking the red carpet, her assistant or publicist was holding it over his shoulder. Like he was carrying it fireman style or something. Well, yeah, because I'm sure it's the most expensive velvet that you can buy, this being Scaparelli Couture. So I bet it did weigh a ton. It looked beautiful, though. As did our girl... Julianne Moore. I sucked other men's cocks. (laughs) She was not sucking other men's cocks. She was wearing this beautiful black Saint Laurent gown with some sort of like white ostrich chubby or cape. I don't know. It was so glamorous. It was almost upsetting. Do you think Tom Ford was seething? He's like, I could fucking do that for her. (laughs) I used to design for Yves Saint Laurent. (laughs) (laughs) She looked so good. Love to see her. Florence Pugh, though. Here's... What's crazy? She wore Nina Ricci. This is the first, I would say, red carpet look of Nina Ricci since Harris Reid took over. Right. But the better look is the one she wore to the Harris Reid show earlier in the week. She would have looked crazy if she showed up in that. She looks crazy in that orange tool gown. I was scared of him getting this Nina Ricci job before I saw this outfit, and now I'm terrified. Now I'm actually just like quivering in my tabbies. She's not lying. She is wearing tabbies today. I honestly don't get it because I think that his clothes only make sense on Grace Jones and literally not one other human person, but that's just my take. Yeah, it just felt very old. I guess that was my point about the look that she wore to the Harris Reid show earlier in the week, which, yes, is crazy. It is this silver and black Harlequin outfit with a high slit skirt and a velvet corset, but at least this feels more youthful than what she's wearing. It looks like something out of a Dynasty episode set in Miami. It's like Giambattista Volley for H&M. <laughs> Woof. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. So yeah, that sucks for her. But clearly she's like besties with Harris Reed. Jodie Turner-Smith, on the other hand, looking fab as per usual, although a very Grammys type outfit, very flamboyant for the BAFTAs. She has previously showed up in yellow sequin Gucci at the BAFTAs when she was pregnant. You know, we talk a lot about how Vuitton or clothes only Jennifer Connelly can wear. I feel like Gucci gowns are gowns only Jodie Turner-Smith can wear. Well, she only wears the ones that look like they could be Bob Mackie costumes from the Cher show like 10,000 years ago. She really leans into the showgirl side of Gucci as opposed to the like boho side. And I love her for that. She's beautiful. Joshua Jackson is hot, but I still can't believe that he bagged her. Maybe they're together, maybe not. Are they not? I don't know. There was some some goss, and by goss I mean what I've read on Dumois where someone noticed they unfollowed each other. Ooh. Then they saw that people online were talking about how they unfollowed each other and then they've refollowed each other. I there's something going on there. Hmm. 
I stand them, though. I hope they can work it out. They live in Calabasas, which I find a very odd choice. Weird. For those that don't live in Los Angeles, I cannot explain to you how, how far, far away Calabasas yeah. is from anything you would want to do. Studios? meetings, shopping. <laughs> I don't understand why they go out in West Hollywood so much. It's like you really want to drive for an hour and a half to just go to Craig's? They have to have drivers and their cars must be hooked up with Wi-Fi so that they can work while they're being driven around. It just seems like that would be such a time suck. At that point, just move to Ojai. Just fully do the I hate LA starter pack and just move to Ojai. <laughs> All right, Vera Wang was there. I've been meaning to talk about Vera Wang for a while now. She obviously is a prolific bridal designer, but she's also a 73-year-old influencer, and I don't think enough people are aware of this, but if you follow her on Instagram, we'll leave the link to her Instagram in the show notes. It is wild. She has low-key been like this for the past 20 years, but I think people are just noticing. She does not look 73. No. She's just a thoughty, immortal, minimalist queen. But this did shock the internet when they learned of her age. Yeah, but like, the internet loves clickbaity articles where it's like, you won't believe how old this woman is. Yeah, as if you don't click on like every single one of those. <laughs> Here's the sad thing. There's one right now with, to me, obviously, Roseanne Arquette's daughter. And they're like, uh, this, this daughter's mom was in a movie with Madonna and her uncle was in Scream. Can you figure out who she is? I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's Roseanne <laughs> Arquette's daughter. I know. Lastly, can we talk about Rosie Huntington? What's her face? I never know how to say her last name. Rosie Huntington Whiteley. Is she British? It sounds like a British name. She's very British. Cool. And she's with a Brit. <laughs> she's with Jason Statham. Who's that? Bald actor from the Guy Ritchie movies. He plays Shaw in the Fast and Furious films, which I know. I have seen the first oh, okay. couple of those. I think they lost me at Tokyo Drift. Yeah, you're missing a lot because the movies go from... Literally, that first film is Point Break with car racing, where they are stealing DVD VHS combination players. And by the time Jason Statham is in these movies, they're arguing with NATO. Okay, I have <laughs> no idea what the fuck you're talking about, but Guess I'm what? sure some of our listeners do. Guess what? The boyfriends of our listeners who are listening to this right now are like, oh, yeah, man. I wonder what Lord's thoughts about the Fast X trailer are. And guys, I got a lot of them. <laughs> <sighs> they released the trailer for the 10th film, Chelsea. The trailer's four minutes long. Rita Moreno has a voiceover in it for some reason. Wait, when did Mar Rita Moreno enter the equation? I don't know. In the ninth film, they're like, oh, by the way, there's been nine of these movies, but we forgot to tell you John Cena is the brother of Vin Diesel and Jordana Brewster. In this Fast 10 trailer, Jason Momoa looks deep faked in the, in the trailer. <laughs> like he never showed up for a day of shooting. <laughs> Wow. Sounds great. Anyway, Rosie Huntington is it Alaya. Yeah, she looks great. Yeah, our favorite brand, Alaya. A person who dares to wear a lie on the red carpet has to be a model. Well, models have an unfair advantage on a red carpet, generally speaking. This is a beautiful, beautiful, I don't know, ensemble, because it's really a bodysuit and a skirt. Although... On the runway, it was worn with a completely sheer bodysuit. And I am kind of sad that she didn't get her tits out on the carpet. Although, what do British people call tits? I bet they have like cute little expressions for that. I'm going to Google that. British slang for boobs. Norks, chabs, <laughs> jubilees, lovely jubilee. No, yeah, ju jubilees? Jubilees, not jubilees. 
Oh, frittatas? No. What, like pancake boobs are called frittatas? I don't know. Anyway. Speaking of Americans that should have no place being in England, you season four? <laughs> this is... <laughs> Not their best season. It doesn't matter because I love the show and I will watch it like no matter what they do. I will say this. For a show that began as a Lifetime series, yes, it began on Lifetime. I remember. About a sexy stalker. They've done a lot with a little. He's now a professor in England. Yeah, I don't know how he really swung that. Uh, spoilers for you if you haven't watched it in the weeks that it's come out but want to. I don't know. Skip ahead a few minutes. There's that weird flashback where a guy's like, hey, love's parents sent me here to kill you, but I'm just going to give you a fake background that's perfect. Anyway, bye. Nothing makes sense. Also, now that we're in this sort of golden age of eat the rich television and film, this is the worst satire <laughs> of the 1% I've ever seen in my life. Like, I'm sure that... British one percenters do occasionally make fun of the lower classes, but these people are crazy. Like, do they go peasant hunting? Spoiler, but I mean, not no. <laughs> British people call it. Oh, yeah, actually, we do that. <laughs> I will say I do like how they keep evolving what could be a repetitive premise where he just falls in love with a girl and becomes obsessed. The undercurrent of this season, besides all the murders, is... The fact that Joe is genuinely falling in love or falling for someone who he's not obsessed with. I will say this season feels a bit like, did you have you ever seen the sequel to Weekend at Bernie's? No. There is a sequel for Weekend at Bernie's and how they get there is like, we're doing the sequel years later, but Bernie's body is still in the morgue. They bring it down to a Caribbean island for reasons unknown. Someone performs voodoo on it. <laughs> And it is reconstituted, and he's just out there. This is what the four seasons of you sort of feels like, <laughs> where they're like, fuck, we've got this guy. It's been four years. Um, Someone's just murdering people around him, and Joe doesn't know what to do. Well, that does take it to a very Dexter place, which was a show about a serial killer that's an ethical serial killer that only kills other serial killers. This season is wild because it is basically set up like a whodunit, although it doesn't really function as one because from the first episode, you know who it is. It's so obvious that it's like, I can't believe you guys did a whole season about this. But have you seen that people think the person that is the killer is potentially a figment of Joe's imagination? I haven't heard that theory, but I wouldn't put it past this wacky-ass show. Did you see the quote that Penn Badgley gave about requesting zero intimacy scenes in season four? Yeah, but I don't know anything about it. Like, explain this to me. He has a podcast called Pod Crash, and everyone took that one segment of the quote, and film Twitter had a whole discourse about like, yeah, I don't even like love scenes. They're so awkward. I just wish they would cut to like the next day after a person kisses. And it's like, okay, all of you are telling on yourself. <laughs> but the extension of the quote is, but I know what kind of show I signed up for. I knew that wasn't possible. And the writers took that as a challenge because there are sex scenes in this show. Right. I think what Maury's getting at is someone who's been asked to masturbate almost every season. He's like, guys, can I not do that? <laughs> yeah, you've already seen my masturbation face like three times. Do we need to do it a fourth time? Yeah, I think the more interesting quote is, he said, fidelity in every relationship, especially in a marriage, is important to me. Which 
kind of leads me to believe that it's like if I keep having intimate scenes with my co-stars, I am going to fuck one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's very like Mike Pence logic. (laughs) After watching this season of You, it is very clear that this show is Britsploitation. Oh my God, we've moved countries, guys. We're into Britsploitation. It's a thing. Thinking back to Britsploitation or the idea of it, it is a very millennial female idea because I was thinking about between Parent Trap, What a Girl Wants, the Olsen twins film Winning London. Like it was a very... <laughs> you mean the Parent Trap remake with oh, Lindsay sorry. Lohan. Yes, the yes. Parent Trap remake. That's yes, full Britsploitation. Yeah, but I think it, it indoctrinated millennial girls of a certain age to be obsessed with London. And then also, as we came of age, there were all of these, like, quote unquote, hot British actors. And so we're just, we go silly over them. Totally. And we had the Spice Girls also were a very important thing. I was going to mention Spice World. Spice World is great. I think any American movie set in London qualifies as Britsploitation. Yes, but I think the things that we would define as Britsploitation, like a Notting Hill, like a Bridget Jones Diary, are British films. It just was like almost like an, an earworm for us as Americans. That's why I was like, when I was thinking about American films set in England, it is a teenage girl in the early 2000s going to Britain to like, meet a boy that they had a correspondence with or like finding out their dad is the king of England I yeah. think is what what a girl wants is about or he's the prime minister I totally forget yeah Britsploitation is a lot about Big Ben the palace guards but Britsploitation doesn't have to be film and television it can also be music and I think the ultimate Britsploitation song is Taylor Swift's London Boy <laughs> yeah which name checks basically every single British neighborhood. She says, like, mate. She uses fancy in the British way. Like, I fancy something. If Britsploitation was a human being, it would be Taylor Swift. She loves a British boy. British people, what did you think of that song when it came out? Were you, like, horrified? Or do you kind of vibe with it? Because I love it personally. I do listen to it in my car sometimes. Was she able to tour Lover? Or is that also in... Okay. No, and I hope that when she does, she does sing London Boy and there's, like, pastel-covered double-decker buses on stage or something. (laughs) Because that was going to be my question. What if she performed it at O2 and everyone just started booing? It's a divisive song, but... I think the fans would appreciate it. I don't think this will be the last time we talk about Britsploitation, for sure. Again, everything this week related to pop culture is British, including (laughs) this Harry and Meghan South Park episode, which I saw the controversy around it of like, oh, they did an episode about Harry and Meghan. They've done zeitgeisty episodes about like Tom Cruise, Kanye West. So I was very shocked that... Yes, they're Harry and Meghan, but they're part of Canadian royalty. Were they scared to get sued by the British royal family? Yeah, they made Harry the Prince of Canada. The whole episode was about how they long for privacy, but yet are telling everyone how all they want is privacy. I think they have a point. Who has a point? Harry and Meghan or no, the South Park? South Park. Yeah. And I love South Park, but I do not think that this is their finest work. Well, no. (laughs) I don't say that because I'm offended. I just think they're capable of more because it's obvious that Trey Parker and Matt Stone or whoever is currently writing for this show, they don't care about Meghan and Harry. 
so they're not really satirizing them to the extent that they could had they watched the documentary or read the book or been clued into either of their personalities. I think where this episode comes from is that their wives were watching the documentary and it's like just their wives talking to them incessantly about Harry and Meghan is where they culled their feelings about this couple from. But page six reported that Meghan was, quote, upset and overwhelmed by the episode but refuses to watch it. And there were false reports that they intended to sue the creators of South Park, which their reps disputed there's nothing worse than looking like you don't have a sense of humor just ask Lars Ulrich about (laughs) that when suing Napster and being butthurt I think he was made fun of in South Park yeah he was I mean Lars Ulrich ultimately was correct (laughs) but the degradation of the music industry if you start giving it away for free or allowing people to take it for free but like lame but also if you're being made fun of on South Park you've made it It's the same thing with SNL. So it really is an honor. I think they were so quick to be like, we're not suing because they do want to look like they have a good sense of humor. I can only hope that one day we'll be parodied on South Park. It would be really easy for them. I'd have the deepest voice in the world. It's just, it's not even subtext. It's all text. It's like, these dumb bitches talk about fashion. On to Vivian Westwood's memorial. I know. I was going (laughs) to let you do the transition. There's like, this is such a hard left turn. That was a really bad transition. That's like those episodes of The View where Joy, Whoopi's gone and Joy has to be the moderator. And it's like, it's giving that. Let us all be blessed to have such an iconic funeral. Yeah. Well, it it was a memorial service. It wasn't an actual funeral. And It always feels wrong to celebrate the fashions of funeral attendees, but I guess we're just going to do that anyway. To be fair, Vogue.com did it first. (laughs) Okay. Before we get into this, I need to talk about Vogue.com. Perfect. Are you having issues? Because they've added a paywall, which fair, the paywall is nothing. It's $12 a year. Vogue, you're worth more than that. You can charge people $5 a month. Like it's fine. But when you create an account, they make you log in every time. Their version of making you log in is put it in your email. Then they send you an email that you have to click, but click the link. But half the time the email is not sent. Like I actually can't access Vogue Runway from anything but my phone now because they don't pay well the phone guys just so you know so get the app you won't have to deal with this yeah the other annoying thing is because I go to uh, Bon Appetit or Architectural Digest and when you pay you I believe or at least I paid for access for all the the Condé Nast titles they make you do the same shit it's like, you don't remember that I'm logged in to the other Condé Nast Vogue website because they say, oh, we know you have an account. Yeah, there's also no way to bundle a digital subscription and the physical magazine, which I would totally do. There's, they've been asked backwards for 20 years. Good luck trying to read this article if you are a member or if you aren't, because either way, it's fucked. Just hope you've never read an article from Vogue.com ever, because that's the only way you'll be able to read this unmolested but they basically recapped the service which seemed amazing nick cave and chrissy hine performed nick cave sang his song into my arms which is my favorite love song any any song that has the lyric i don't believe in an interventionist god top tier love song beautiful her husband andreas krontaler's 
eulogy sounded absolutely beautiful. He talked about their first date, how he took her to a museum, how they looked at some Rubens painting. And at that moment, he realized that they would be together forever. And he wore a tie with the Rubens painting on it. It's like the most romantic thing I've ever heard of. It's also giving the souvenir, the fabulous Joanna Hogg movie, where a Fragonard painting titled The Souvenir is sort of an integral part of this very tragic love story. It's just, it's so romantic. I know, I teared up. The second story he told was about how she had this book that was falling apart and he was going to get it rebound for her, but then he realized some pages were missing. And then only after her death did he find the missing pages. God, I want a love like that. It's it's beautiful. Their love story is as fabulous as one could get. Also, Helena Bonham Carter apparently brought down the house. She's the fucking best. She showed up in like a full Westwood tartan with the orb necklace, the pearls, like the full look. She is OG Westwood customer. And she made this point in her. Would you call it a eulogy? I guess. Yeah. Where she was like, I bought a dress every single year, which I understand goes against Vivian Westwood's ethos of buying less. But like, can you sue me? I mean, come on. She's also talked about being on a red carpet once. And someone was like, you always wear like the same Vivian Westwood dress, basically, or like different iterations of the same dress. That's boring. And she basically like laid into him and was like, all these other actresses have been starving, but I ate a full ass English breakfast today. (laughs) I don't know if she said English. Probably not. Yeah. (laughs) It's just breakfast to them. She had those beans. She had the sausages. She just went all in on that breakfast on the day of the Oscars or whatever. Can we talk about the fashion? Yeah, we have to talk about the fashion. Helena obviously looked incredible, but I think the biggest serve was Farida Kelfa, who, wow. Imagine being that glamorous at a funeral. I assume she was wearing Scaparelli, but she was wearing this sort of like curly fur jacket with some sort of belted leather corset and like black flares and looked so glamorous. I know this is beside the point, but it did hearten me to see that Giles Deacon and Gwendolyn Christie are still together. (laughs) So cute. Yeah. Nick Cave and his wife, Susie Cave. Incredible. The most glamorous couple always. One of these days we'll get matching vampire's wife dresses. (laughs) We don't talk about vampire's wife ever because they don't have shows. And her dresses are, I don't want to say they're redundant because they're beautiful, but she's known for this very specific structured dress. Silhouette, yeah. That looks absolutely beautiful. Although she also does make great caftans. I did wear one to my friend Joanna's wedding last year. They're gorgeous. Damn. Love her. Chic as always. I love how she looked like her normal style, but she did wear the orb, like a brooch or something. I'm so dumb. I was like, oh man, I want that Vivian Westwood coat. And I was like, oh, that's probably her coat. And then the Vivian Westwood orb. But I don't know what, it could be Gucci. It could be, I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it was fab. I will periodically forget about Mark Jacobs and Victoria Beckham's friendship. And this funeral reminded me like, oh yeah, they know each other. They're buddies. They both look great. Talk about a power couple. What was that text chain? Like, hey, were you invited to Vivian Westwood's memorial? Yeah, me too. Want to go together? Want to coordinate? I think it's understood that they would both be invited to that. I will say, Mark Jacobs, it looks like he was wearing some sort of like Chanel men's tweed set or something with a pearl necklace and a shoe that looks like a women's flat. 
I will say that watching his style evolution has been truly beautiful. I think he's one of the best dressed people in the world. Absolutely. And his transparency when he got his facelift was Mm -hmm. iconic. Yeah, that new jawline is angular. Although I am waiting for Gen Z boys to discover early 2000s Marc Jacobs nerd chic style and recreate that. You know how mothers always say, like, I mourn for my child at, like, every stage? Yeah. I do feel that way about OG Marc Jacobs. Yeah. Marc Jacobs 1.0. Yeah. We love this Marc Jacobs, but... I love every Marc Jacobs. I've never not loved any of them. They're just all very different people. This was also a big Nepo baby event. So many Nepo babies. Move over Paris Fashion Week or the Met Gala. (laughs) We got Iris Law, which is... Jude Law and Sadie Frost child. Sadie Frost was there. I don't think Jude Law was there. But I believe that's the child. Do you remember this story from the early 2000s? Because Sadie Frost is good friends with Kate Moss. I believe it's Iris Law is the one that accidentally consumed an ecstasy tablet. I don't love that. but it's not great. That's not good, but... You know, shit happens. Kate Moss was there, of course, with her daughter. Dressed in Westwood, I assume. Or at the very least, dressed in the shoes. Leela? Lila had the purse. Yeah. And then an OG Nepo baby, Jolie Fisher, with her mother, Vanessa Redgrave. Yeah, I forgot about her. Was she mentioned in the Nepo Babies article? Because they did have a section of it that was about the elder Nepo babies. I don't know. I think she might have escaped that. They both looked really great. It was there was a camel story happening <laughs> with the two of them. <laughs> Very glamorous. Also, I love how Vanessa Redgrave was wearing Uggs. You know what? When you get to a certain age, you get to wear whatever the fuck you want. And I love that she's like, I'm going to be chic as fuck like it's 1974, but I'm gonna be comfortable. Yeah, I remember once <laughs> I saw Carol Burnett at the SAG Awards and she was in a full just sequin gown, like what you wear to a award show. Uggs underneath. You couldn't see it right. like in the photos. But when she was walking, I was like, this bitch is wearing Uggs. I saw on TikTok this week that someone was rewatching Gossip Girl and there's one of the best continuity errors, which is Blake Lively is in a short like Hervé Léger dress for her coverage. And then it, it flips around and she's wearing sweatpants like just underneath the dress because she thought it was a tighter shot and it's not. <laughs> and it's the shot of her picking up a bag and then she puts it over where the sweatpants would be, but you could still fully see it. On to London Fashion Week. Let's do it. I've structured this based on Samantha's thoughts about publicity, which is that we're doing the gays first and then the girls. Okay. So starting with Burberry, the most talked about show of the week. The most talked about show of fashion month yet right it's daniel lee formerly a bottega at burberry it seems like if you're making fashion these days you need a gimmick animal and for burberry (laughs) that is now a duck well they like talk about leaning into the british you think this episode is british this show is is about as british as as a show could get i don't know what i was expecting from it but I was not expecting Dries Van Noten, which is what this show reminded me of so strongly in terms of like the prints, the color palette, even some of the silhouettes. But it was, of course, like a younger version of that with graphic tees and whimsical accessories thrown in. It has one of the oddest choices for a final look I think I've ever seen because the show is so strong. Sorry to jump to the end, but it ends with this like poofy almost like Sean John early 2000s puffy suit that's rose print. It was giving artistic fuckboy. 
I was into that. I think I was expecting this to look more like Bottega minus the green plus the plaid, which we didn't see any of, the classic Burberry trench coat in that colorway anyway. We didn't get any of that stuff. I don't know. I didn't really like it. I mean, I'm sure there were beautiful pieces, but it wasn't a bad show, but I don't think it lived up to the insane amount of hype around it. Well, of course, it's never going to live up to that. I think Burberry out of any heritage brand made a pivotal mistake at a time where fashion seems to be going in a more quiet, luxury, wearable fashion way that they just like doubled down on a fuckboy brand and it didn't work. And I think Daniel Lee is being tasked with reimagining this very venerable heritage brand. So you still had the trenches, but yes, they're not the classic look. You had plaid prints, but he put them on this almost like Dutch tilt, which I thought was interesting. Well, also the duck stuff felt like very Prada to me, those prints. It was also to me giving a season three Trey McDougal's apartment. Yeah, totally. It also looks like whoever's been doing Stella McCartney's graphic tees, they just found that person and got them to do the shirts for this show, which they weren't bad. They were very well done. I just did not expect that. In Kathy Horn's review, she said that he wisely avoided references to British subculture, namely punk. But I felt like those plaid pants with the zipper on the thigh was giving at least elevated mall punk. It was more grunge in that sort of way that Dries does grunge right. than anything else. I did want to see some Chav influences, though, because I feel like that's... <laughs> The side of Burberry that I would imagine that he might be into that? I don't think so. The other reason that Daniel Lee was brought into Burberry is if he knows anything, it's color theory. And I think reimagining the color palette for Burberry is smart. Also, his mind for accessories and accessory designs. Can we talk about the the fur-heated water bottle clutches? Well, they were literally just water bottles with covers. Yeah, some luxury brands, I guess the extremely British ones manufacture such things. Oh, I thought it was that was the whole idea was that they just were clutches that look like. No, they're literally just water bottles. Well, now I like that a lot less. (laughs) I didn't see enough of the bags like to be able to really get a read on them. Although I just I don't know who wants this much fake fur, but that's just that's just me. Although I do, as someone that grew up in the Pacific Northwest, which has a similar climate to Britain, I do appreciate the coziness of these clothes. This is like actually practical shit if you live in England. And I think that's cool. Like it's perfect for people with seasonal depression. Like when you can barely get out of bed in the morning and you want your clothes to be as close to bed as possible. Yeah. Go buy something at Burberry. How can you be depressed when you're wearing a a maroon and red plaid print? And obviously, you know, we all want Burberry to do well. It is Britain's biggest heritage brand. They don't have a shitload of them like Italy or whatever. So it kind of reflects on the entire British fashion industry in a weird way. This collection didn't set the fashion world on fire. Most of the reviews, including Kathy Horn, were like, "Uh, good start. The reviews were kind of mixed. I don't know if I read any that were like, this is brilliant, but it seems like on the internet, everyone's like, what is this show? Because I think they expected it to be more like Bottega. So, you know, Machu is coming out on top. Uh, Shall we get into your love, Richard Quinn? I always like his clothes. So I feel like I don't know if I have the most interesting 
read on this particular collection. I like the fact that he is a designer that doesn't try and reinvent the wheel each season. He stays true to his strengths, which is gowns, prints, latex, stuff like that. Although there was no latex in this collection. There was no fetish references. There were dancers dressed like cat women and like the gay, like, BDSM dogs that we were talking about last week or week before last, they opened the show as like a sort of dance performance, but they weren't actually like wearing clothes that were part of the collection. Yeah, he said of the show that they wanted to do something really ethereal this season. They were looking back at Chanel and Dior in the 80s and 90s, which you could really see the the 80s gown influence. What was interesting is, and it made it feel like an early 90s or mid 90s Valentino or Chanel show was, there were a lot of bridal looks. There was a lot of bridal, but I think the gowns were beautiful. They were really classic. There's actually not much about this collection that is trendy. Considering he's like a sort of hot young British designer, it is really, for the most part, quite conservative. It's interesting you say that because he also said, especially now, I just want people to feel sort of an overwhelmingly love reaction to the clothes. And I think we saw this in New York Fashion Week. I assume... I mean, maybe we won't see it in Paris, but this is the fashion industry bracing for this impending recession, which again, I say the people that can buy these clothing, this these clothes don't have to worry about the impending recession, but it's interesting how that's being interpreted. Well, speaking of which, if you don't have $3,000 to spend on a Richard Quinn dress, you can buy his Mac collaboration, which just came out this week or last week or something. So if you want to buy a nice $30 mascara, you can. There you go. To go back, I think you're remarking on, it is true, for how many bridal looks he did, the fact that not one of them is in a gimp mask as well is (laughs) frankly shocking. I know. uh, When you could do a white satin gimp mask, (laughs) that would be pretty amazing. God, I wish I had the personality to be able to pull off a white satin gimp mask at my wedding, but... (laughs) I feel like some family members would have some questions. Yeah, you can walk your husband (laughs) down the aisle in his like Richard Quinn fetish dog outfit. In a rubber French maid outfit. Oh, yeah, all the bridesmaids can wear. You mean you? (laughs) (sighs) Richard Quinn, sponsor my wedding. Actually, as the maid of honor, I assume... (laughs) I don't want the French maid look like anyone else. I want to be, I want you to have one of those, you know, the rubber fetishists that just lay down on the operating table and just get suctioned down to it. Oh, the, yeah, you want like latex. I want that. Just put a little tube in my mouth. I'll be there. Who am I getting married to? Pinhead from Hellraiser? (laughs) (laughs) All right. On to... JW. So this collection featured a lot of collaborative pieces with Michael Clark, who's a very cool, very gay choreographer, dancer who rose to prominence in the 1980s. Yeah. And the graphics from his posters and like costumes from the dancers and stuff were used throughout the show quite successfully, I think. But my favorite part about this collection is the boots. Did you see the ones that look like cat paws? No, wait. I'll put them in the show notes. This is my look come fall. I'm going to be walking around like a little kitty cat. It's like J.W. Anderson saw the tabbies and was like, hold my beer. Hold my feline. (laughs) You think two prongs is fashionable? What about three? Yeah, three. Although the toes aren't separated like the tabby. 
They're more bulbous and cat-like. And I'm sure Molly Rogers is looking at this collection being like, fuck, because there's so many perfectly carry things, like that the outfit with the white, almost uh, skinny yet flared pants, and then the the tube top where you can put your hands inside with a pink, almost like textured top. Anyway, it's giving Carrie Bradshaw. Not that she's wearing anything as such in this current season from the photos we're seeing. But anyway, moving on. Um, Christopher Kane. I never thought I'd say this, but I actually really like those peplum skirts. I think peplums have had a really rough go. I think it's something that I now associate with female Fox News correspondents. Fair. He brought it back. He made these just really exaggerated, crazy vinyl skirts, and I thought they were beautiful. Yeah, they're not just a peplum. He was like, what if I put like 16 layers of them and make them latex? I also love the rat dress. Very John Waters. The collection is three-fourths of it is so feminine and like very like back-to-office vibes. And then the last three looks are like piglet dress, rat top, rat dress. <laughs> Chicky dress. Oh my God. I just love the idea of, of a collection getting like subtly more unhinged as it comes down the runway. Some celebs are bound to wear the animal dresses. They are very clickbaity. Instagram friendly. So now that we've done the gays, on to the girls. Yes. One show that I thought that was really exciting this London Fashion Week was Moa Loa, who hasn't showed in a minute, or I think since before the pandemic. I don't know. But I think this was a great show. It was like Zizmore Core on steroids. Well, she said that the collection was about the collapse of society and like what she envisions people wearing at the end time. And I guess in the end times, we're just like taunting brands to sue us and like wearing denim hoodie gimp masks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, because she did logo flips of the MoMA logo, the Yankees logo, which were quite successful. But my favorite part of this collection was the Trompe Loy like leather pieces that looked like it was like leather pants that had the zippers and the hardware airbrushed on. Yeah. So I think the first look of this show was amazing and had these pants or skirt. I don't know what the fuck it is, but it looks like the most extreme version of sagging. Are we bringing sagging back? She is. Also, we should note that Loda Volkova styled this show and I think did a lot. She was working through the Balenciaga, the trauma of being... Doxed. Yeah, doxed and called a Satanist pedophile. You can, yeah. f- you can feel it in the in the styling of this show. But good for her. She did an excellent job. Okay, so our next designer, I think the last time we talked about her, we didn't know how to pronounce her name, but thankfully some of our listeners called in and told us, let's play the call. Hello, this is Celine from London. And the designer that you were trying to pronounce the name of is Dilara Fundukolo. She is a Turkish-born designer, and it's a Turkish name. I guess she's based out of London. Yeah, that's it. They were like, hey, dumbasses, this is how you say (laughs) She makes me want to dress in a way I should definitely not be dressing. (laughs) In your mid-30s? Yeah. (laughs) What, like a psycho whore from hell? But like an age-appropriate psycho whore from hell. You know... I love when we have female designers that make women look like psycho whores from hell 
it's what Vivian Westwood would have wanted. And we didn't talk about Elena Velez, who is a New York-based designer who had a show this season that was also quite good. But she's also a psycho whore from hell designer. Love that we're getting some fresh blood. It's so hard to explain this aesthetic because it's so many things. It's like a girl that's read too many romance novels but has also probably watched too much hardcore porn as a young person, but then also is into a schoolgirl aesthetic, but also listens to PJ Harvey. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of references I'm into. And maybe I just, with everything I listed, am projecting a little too much of myself on the, <laughs> this collection. But. Right. And also someone that clearly adores people like John Galliano, Vivian Westwood, those British designers that were doing sort of like deconstructed clothes in the in the 90s that highly structured dress that she made out of silverware that could so easily look like a project runway challenge and it's incredible yeah it's a very margella type concept but on a like mcqueen silhouette it's beautiful i hope that kate blanchett wears that to the oscars she would be on the all the worst dress lists but i do think it would be a an iconic moment it would go down like the bjork swan dress one thing I like about her is that so many fashion shows are sort of edited and styled in a way where everything fucking matches each other. Yeah. Whereas her looks kind of like are varied. They stand on their own. And that is a very Westwood type approach to having a fashion show. Yeah, it's hard to even say that these are styled incredibly because all of the pieces are so intricate but are of a piece together. Yeah, I don't think they're heavily styled. I think they're looks that are conceived of as full looks. Which usually we dislike, but in this case is incredible. I don't actually dislike that. I like it. That approach really serves what she's doing. But I think the most shocking, spooky part of the show was seeing Lisa Rinna in a head-to-toe look. I know. It, did Amelia Gray walk in the last show? I think she also came to the show. I think it was a mother-daughter moment. Oh, my God. Speaking of which, I totally forgot to tell you. When I was flying to Hawaii with Tat, the TSA guy looked at us and was like, you guys look alike. And then, to me, is that your daughter? <gasps> I'm not fucking joking, Lauren. And Tat just started laughing. <sighs> And I was like, oh, God, I don't want to, like, correct him and have it sound bitchy and then have him be too scared to talk to a gay person ever again. So I was just like, yes, <laughs> she's a pesky little rug rat, but I love her. <laughs> and then I just walked through. I was like, oh, my God. It's funny because I've had this happen to me before, but it's been the opposite. Like where someone thought Tat was your uh, someone thought I was the daughter of my ex. That's also terrifying. That's but. terrifying, but that makes a, a little more sense. There was there was a sizable age, age gap between you two. Yeah, it's like what do you think I popped this bitch out when I was eleven? Like, also, how young do you think Tat is? And then, therefore, how, how old, old do you think, think I am? Well, it's, I could have a kid. I could have a teenager, but I couldn't have a twenty-seven-year-old. <laughs> Tat was looking especially teenage that day, I assume. And I was like, do I look that old? I'm in my like Telfar White Castle hoodie. I love that you didn't want to hurt his feelings. (laughs) Well, I was also just like, I did find it funny. I was slightly offended, of course, but like not really. Uh, It caught me off guard. Well, on that note... (laughs) 
Well, when we did our Love Actually Patreon episode, we didn't know how to say goodbye in British, and we looked it up. Do you remember what Google told us? No. Gotta go. (laughs) That's really bad. But again, if you live in Miami, come see us. Talk to Heidi Bivens. And as always, we will be back next week. All right. Bye, guys. See you next week. Bye. God, I love the English. You know I love a London boy. I enjoy nights.